You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, I'm willing to bet that some of you have maybe had this experience. This happened to me several months ago. Went to bed at night, kind of rolled over there, checked the phone, set the alarm for the next morning, put it on the nightstand, rolled back over, and then I woke up eight and a half hours later to not the sound of an alarm, because I hadn't set it for 5 a.m., I set it for 5 p.m. Anybody ever had that experience? <laughs> it's like terrifying. It was the worst feeling ever. For me, I have this like real deep fear of missing out. I'm not sure if you ever have that, where you're going, well, now my day is completely ruined because I'm playing catch up. I'm behind everything. Other people are doing things that I now need to catch up to, and I feel completely irresponsible. Fear of missing out is a thing. And so often for me, I am a slave to my alarm clock, like many of us. Fear of missing out. I think it's true physically. I think it's true in a lot of ways. I think it's absolutely true spiritually. What if we're missing out on what God wants to do? Would we know it? What if we forgot to set the alarm? What if we didn't set the alarm? What if, hmm, what if we're missing out on what God wants us to do? Well, if you know that feeling, or if you've ever wondered it, today's going to be very good for you. Last week, we started this quick three-week series called Awakening, where we said, I don't want to get back to normal, I want to get back to better. We were in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, and we saw from King Josiah how owning our sin, taking extreme measures, and breaking cycles in our lives kind of paves the way for revival. This morning, we're going to take a look at another revival, actually three mini-revivals, all kind of rolled into one. But the curious thing about this one is it almost didn't happen. We're going to be in the book of Jonah this morning. And so if you've got a hard copy of God's Word, I want you to turn there. You can turn there on your phone. I'll let you know there's not going to be Scripture slides on the screen this morning because we're going to take a look at the, at the whole book and we're going to try and condense it um, to fit into our space this morning. But here's the thing you've got to know about Jonah. This is not really the story about a fish. It's not really the story about... A reluctant prophet. Here's the thing you got to know about Jonah. At its core, this short book is really about one person, one idea, and one question. When God brings revival, what's my role? What am I supposed to do in my life? What's God asking me to do? How do you prepare for this? Can you prepare for this? Just to blow the ending Here's where I want to hang our hats this morning. Only when we know the mercy of God can we enjoy the movement of God. Only when we know the mercy of God can we enjoy the movement of God. 
So first things first, while you're finding your way to Jonah, a little bit of context to sort of kind of get us acclimated. First thing you got to know, the book of Jonah is actually Jonah's second assignment as a prophet. A lot of us don't know that. Um, once upon a time, Jonah was a very faithful prophet in Israel. God used him in another way to call another king to repentance. He was, a, he was a really good prophet once upon a time, but by the time we find Jonah today, it's a little bit different story. Jonah is almost the antithesis of King Josiah, who we looked at last week. He's almost the opposite, and here's how I want you to imagine it. If Josiah's story last week was a photograph, Jonah is the negative of that photograph, The lines still fall in the exact same places, but what was bright in one is now dark in the other. The images are reversed. What was positive in Josiah's life is negative in Jonah's life. Everything is inverted. Where Josiah eagerly wants revival to come to people he loves, Jonah reluctantly brings revival to people he can't stand. Josiah is connected to his audience as their beloved king, and Jonah is this strange voice bellowing down dismal alleyways of a dark and distant city. King Josiah brought the revival that nobody expected. Jonah brought the revival that nobody wanted. So that's the first thing. We've got to understand who this guy is. Second thing we've got to know about Jonah, just to get us acclimated, is Nineveh. Nineveh. Nineveh literally means fishville. I'm not kidding. You can't make this stuff up. Nineveh was a super powerful city. Okay? By the time Jonah gets on the scene, Nineveh is nearing its zenith as the largest city in the ancient world. 120,000 people jammed into an area of two and a half square miles. So super dense, super powerful city. There was a lot going on in Nineveh. 18 canals brought water into the city. The king's palace was like four football fields all put together. This is a big deal. But Nineveh had a little bit of a dark side too. They were a warrior culture. They loved war. They were antagonistic. They were vicious This is going to get a little gross here for a second, but just kind of hang with me. When a Ninevite general would conquer an opposing king, they would cut up that king's body and send it in pieces all over the city as souvenirs. Kind of gross. Like, this is the kind of people that we're dealing with. Actually, archaeologists have found a relief on one of the walls in the ancient city that reads like this. It says, They're young and old, I did not spare... And with their corpses, I filled the streets of the city. Like, this is the kind of people, like, kind of gruesome stuff. But Nineveh was also really religious. They were at a cultural crossroads at the, at the Tigris River, which ran north and south, and then they were at a trade route east and west, okay? So they brought in a lot of different religions. They were a polytheistic city, kind of, kind of very cosmopolitan. There was a lot going on in Ninevite religion. But get this, deep in their cultural mythology, Nineveh had this really weird and kind of gross legend, kind of like their version of like Paul Bunyan or Pecos Bill, something like that, where someday a man would come warning them of doom and calling them to justice. They didn't know this man's name or or what he would be, but they knew this. Now get this. This man would come from the sea and he would be half man, half fish. 
He would smell like fish. His skin would be bleached with sea salt. Some ancient depictions actually have him pictured wearing fish. Isn't that weird? Fascinating, isn't it? Last thing you've got to know about this little book. Jonah, as a book, it's four chapters. There are 11 questions in this book, and nine of them are aimed right at Jonah. That sounds like a small detail, but here's why that matters. Jonah is a prophet running from revival. It's part of who he is. And as you walk through these questions, and we'll read some of them this morning, you get the impression that, like, Jonah is being prosecuted. He's in some kind of unseen eternal trial where everyone's pressing into him, trying to pin something on him, trying to figure out what he's really about. And he just kind of, like, gets backed into the corner all throughout his book. I want you to pay attention to that. Jonah even ends with a question mark. The last verse of the book is a question. It just kind of dangles out there in space like this unattached spider's web just blowing in the breeze. There's no ending to the book. It doesn't resolve. It's like quitting after eight innings with the score still tied. It's like an appetizer, a main course, and no dessert. There's something deeply unfulfilling about the book of Jonah, but as you'll see when it comes to Jonah, that irresolution is kind of the point. So... Enough of the context, let's get to it. One narrative, three mini revivals. Here we go. Revival number one, we're going to take a look in Jonah chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So God is really quick, and he's to the point. He even clues Jonah in on his intention a little bit. Let's remember, Jonah has seen God's mercy before. This is his second assignment. He knows what God's about. He knows what God's going to do. And so what's Jonah say? Nope, not Nineveh, not going there. And so he heads the other direction. Now, I know that none of us know where these cities are, Tarshish and and Nineveh and Joppa. So here's what this is like. Let's put this into today. Let's say you are sitting at the Starbucks outside Washington Square, which is like my second home. And all of a sudden, the clouds part, and the God of creation says, I want you to go to Maine and preach the gospel. You're like, well, that's weird. Okay. And instead of getting in my car and going to Maine, I head over to Akron Kenton Airport and I buy a ticket for Seattle. Okay. That's what this would be like at great cost and inconvenience to myself. That's the span that we're talking about here. Ready for some turbulence? Here we go. Take a look in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship in the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. Fascinating. The captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now you can't miss the irony here. This heathen sea captain is pressing the prophet to prayer. 
Because I'm sitting here thinking, Jonah, like, you should know better. <laughs> you know the problem and you know the solution. The captain is pleading and the prophet is sleeping. The captain is desperate. The prophet is complacent. One is looking for a solution. The other is looking out for himself. They're saying, Jonah, we're all in the same boat, literally. Do something. Is your faith even real? Huh. It's a sad commentary when the lost push the saved into spiritual activity. And I know it's really early on to crank on this too hard, but can you see 2021 in this image? Desperate people, storm-tossed, trying anything they can to just stop the crazy, and so many Christians asleep with the solution. Let's keep going. Verse 7. They said to one another, Come, let's cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. So in the deck, in the middle of all of this storm, this culturally diverse polytheistic crew call out to their gods, and not surprisingly, there's no answer. So they play this ancient game of dice where they try to figure out who's at fault, and the bad mojo falls to Jonah. So with their suspicions confirmed that this stranger is the reason for the storm, their questions start. Take a look in verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Whose people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now that's kind of (laughs) rich. You're like, really, Jonah, really? I know you fear him now. (laughs) Where was that fear back on the dock in Joppa? It's kind of convenient. (laughs) Quick insight. Actions always speak louder than words about what we believe, right? So what happens? Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? (laughs) For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will be quiet or will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, which is interesting, they contradict him. They try to save his life. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous around them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So that's the first scene. That's revival number one. God calls Jonah, Jonah resists, God brings revival in spite of what Jonah didn't do. He's an uncooperative, stubborn, reluctant prophet. Says something about our sovereign God, doesn't it? More on that in a minute. Now about this fish, just really quick. Yes, I do believe this happened. 
There are a lot of scholars who want to dismiss this as a fairy tale or a myth, but I'm content in the conviction that this is God's world so he can do whatever he wants to do. But I don't want to get so wrapped up in the great fish that we miss the great God behind the fish. Because again, remember, this is about God, not about Jonah. So the text says that Jonah spends three days in the belly of a fish. And what's the result? Chapter 2. An eight-stanza hymn, worshiping God. Jonah is wrestling between fear and faith, and so he worships. Do you ever feel that way? Isn't worship connected to our deepest emotions? I feel that way. And so this scene closes with this, with this fish spitting Jonah up on land, presumably within walking distance to Nineveh. And so with a slightly softer heart in chapter 2, verse 10, up he comes, and he starts to walk into Nineveh. And here comes revival number 2. Take a look in chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against the message that I tell you. Now, if that language sounds familiar, it should. It's exactly how we started off back in chapter 1. The verbs are even the same in Hebrew. Go, or arise, go, and preach, or proclaim. So in a very real sense, Jonah is kind of getting a little bit of a do-over. He's getting a second chance. Quick aside, anybody else thankful that our God is a God of second chances? And I love how God just picks up where he left off. Like God, like, eh, there's nothing happened. There's no rebuke yet, right? There's no smack on the wrist for the whole Joppa debacle. There's no, oh, hey, yeah, Jonah, about the fish, you're welcome. God doesn't do that yet. He isn't letting Jonah off the hook, though. God has something he needs Jonah to learn about revival, and it's bound up in what happens next. Take a look in verse 3. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What a winsome message for a preacher to give. <laughs> and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the people put on sackcloth, this coarse material that's kind of like burlap. The ancient people used sackcloth and ashes kind of like where we would wear black to a funeral. It's just a visible sign that I'm mourning and I'm dealing with something that's way deep down on the surface of my soul. And I got to square with something. So there's this grassroots groundswell of repentance spilling out across the city from living rooms to streets to neighborhoods to sections of the city. And then in verse 6, where movement becomes mandate and private despair becomes public decree, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. Doesn't that bring to mind Josiah's revival from last week? You hear the same threads, pun intended? Interesting, Josiah rips his robe, removes his robe here. It's the same sign. Owning your sin, taking extreme measures if needed, breaking these cycles. This king takes the extreme measure of leaving his robe, losing it in an act of repentance. Something we've got to see here. God always changes cultures the same way he changes people from the inside out. It's never from the outside in. So why are they so quick to believe him? Jonah. Yes, this terrible sermon. (laughs) Why are they so quick to believe him? Remember that half man, half fish legend? Men who will come from the sea, warn about doom, and preach deliverance. It would seem like Nineveh was ready for Jonah a long time before Jonah was ready for them. And at the right time, revival starts. Like a spark that catches some kindling and then the whole neighborhood goes up. Something is definitely happening. So what does God think about this 120,000 person wildfire? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now that's great, right? That's a great picture of what revival looks like. Like these people who barely know God repented, and God says, all right, I will stave off this disaster. And Jonah, I mean, this is like every preacher's dream. Like he preaches an eight-word sermon and 120,000 people repent. Like, man, I missed that day in preaching class. (laughs) And that should be where the story ends. But it isn't. Because even though Jonah thinks he's done, God is not done. There's a third revival that needs to happen. And this fire that started on a ship with a handful of sailors, and then progressed to this city and blew out the city, now becomes more focused and smaller and hotter than it's been up until this point. As great as that revival was, the greatest one is yet to come. Revival number three. Take a look in chapter four. (laughs) But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Really? And he, prayed to the, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord says, Do you do well to be angry? So perpetually malcontented Jonah 
finally gets his one-on-one with God. And he just unloads. He goes, God, I knew what would happen. I knew what you're about. I know that you're gracious. I know that you love people. I can't stand them, but I know you love them. And that's why I didn't want to go. I want to stay mad. And then, like a great father dealing with a pouting child, God asks Jonah a rhetorical question, the kind of question you're supposed to hear and think about but not really answer. Jonah, are you right to feel this way? Implication, no. But underneath that's the real question. Why are you feeling this way, Jonah? What is in your heart? So like a toddler that's been told he can't have what he wants, Jonah storms off. This is kind of becoming a thing with him. Take a look in verse 5 and watch what happens and watch who causes it. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. That's like a tent or like a little lean-to kind of a shelter. And he sat there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. What a sniveling little weasel. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's far better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? Oh, you see what he's doing? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Question mark. Did you catch that word appointed that ran throughout that one? You think God's doing something? That word appointed is used four times in the book of Jonah. God appointed a fish, chapter 1, verse 17. God appoints a plant, chapter 4, verse 6. He appoints a worm, verse 7. Then he appoints an east wind in verse 8. All throughout Jonah, there's this inescapable sense of God's sovereignty. God has a plan that Jonah can't thwart, only a plan that he will miss out on. So God asks Jonah a few more probing questions, and that's it. Book over. Just a question mark dangling out there in the wind. Should I not pity Nineveh? This is God saying, tell me, Jonah, since you're so smart, tell me, since you know everything, where does my pity end? Where does my mercy end? Who should I not be gracious to, Jonah? Why don't you tell me that? Why don't you tell me how to run my world, Jonah, since you're so smart? And that's the cliffhanger. So how do you apply a book that ends with a question mark? Here's the key. Most scholars think that Jonah wrote Jonah. 
If he wasn't the author, he was definitely the source. Nobody could have had all the details. Nobody would have written this way. Nobody would have known everything else that goes on unless it's Jonah. But here's my question. Why would Jonah write such a negative picture of himself? I mean, if you're painting a self-portrait, this is not how I would go about it. The heathens in this book are way more noble than Jonah is, the sea captain, the king. God, or he asks God to kill him simply because he's not getting his way. And then when revival breaks out everywhere he goes, he just pouts and he runs away like a toddler. When you boil it all down, he is a bitter, narcissistic whiner with a racial superiority problem. Here's what I think. Only a repentant sinner could write about himself like this. And I think at the end, after the book, he got God's mercy. He understood it. I think he learned what he needed to learn. So here's how this little book teaches us about revival. Only when we know the mercy of God can we enjoy the movement of God. Only when we know the mercy of God can we enjoy the movement of God. North Canton Chapel, you want to see your world changed? Want to see our world get better? I do. I hope you do. What's the plan? The gospel. (laughs) The unending mercy of God shown in the cross of Christ. Dangerously oversimplifying here. Sin is the problem. God's mercy is the solution, period. So here's how we're going to approach the next nine minutes. There are three questions that Jonah did not ask. And these are three questions that you necessarily should ask. They're questions I ask myself if we want to be ready for what God is going to do. Question number one, have you met mercy? Do you know God's mercy? Really? Have you met mercy? Let's clarify terms first, because at the crux of all things, this is Jonah's biggest problem. Jonah wants justice, right? Justice, you know this, is getting what you deserve, and Nineveh deserved it. They were a terrible kingdom. Everybody knew they were terrible. They loved being terrible. And so Jonah goes, God, Give it to them. Let them have it. They're evil, God. Give it to them. But he knows that God, while just, is also merciful. Mercy, let's define that. If justice is getting what I deserve, mercy is not getting what I deserve. It's God withholding his hand. It's God saying, yes, you do deserve punishment, but I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to hold it back. Jonah ends on a question mark because he cannot imagine how God could be just and merciful. How is this possible? This is like a chordal dissonance in his mind. It's like, you can't be both of these things, God. You either smite evil people or you love the good guys. He wants a very black and white world. He wants everything very clear for him. What person, think with me, church, embodies God's justice and God's mercy in himself? Isn't it Christ? 
Jonah finds his ultimate fulfillment, this ultimate question, points directly to the cross. And so despite his best attempts by pushing this tension between justice and mercy forward, he actually foreshadows Jesus. I hope you caught this early on. That scene in the boat, did you catch up on that? That sent up any red flags. Jonah, he's asleep in the boat. Mark chapter 4, Jesus, asleep in the boat. Sailors come busting in saying, don't you care about what's going on? Disciples bust in on Jesus. Don't you care about what's going on? Jonah says, if you want to be saved, throw me to the wrath of God. Jesus, if you want to be saved, pin me to a cross. In the cross, justice and mercy are both satisfied. In the cross, someone else took my punishment, your punishment. In the cross... Jesus got what he didn't deserve, so I didn't get what I did deserve. Justice and mercy bound up together on the cross. So before we go anywhere else, these other two questions are really built off of this one. Have you met God's mercy? You want to be a merciful person? Do you know that God's merciful to you? Have you come to the cross and said, God, I deserve all of it. Every drop of your wrath should be pointed square at me. But like in the words of that old hymn, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. He put his blood between me and the wrath of God. We don't talk about God's wrath much, but it's a real thing. Have you met a merciful God? Otherwise, this is just a fish story. Only when we personally know the mercy of God can we freely enjoy the work of God. Second question, and this one's probably the most obvious. Are you running? Now, this is for those of you who know Jesus, but you're stalled out. So I'm not trying to guilt anyone into obedience here, but guys, I am just like Jonah. My rebellion, and this is just me, maybe, maybe you're the same way. My rebellion isn't this loud, bombastic, blow it out your ear, God, kind of rebellion. My rebellion, just to confess, is this quiet, well-mannered, don't like to cause too much of a stir. I'll just sneak away when no one's looking. I'll find a ship in the other direction where I can go down and just kind of hunker down for a while. That's what my rebellion looks like. Maybe you're the same way. If Jonah teaches us anything, it's that God's going to have his revival with or without me. He doesn't need me. He wants me. He has his plan. This is his world. He is working his plan. He will accomplish his purposes. He's going to do as he wants, when he wants, with whoever he wants, how he wants. He is 100% free. He has no contingencies. I don't add anything to God's plan. And some of you know this truth. He doesn't need you, but what? He wants you. He doesn't want you running. Why? For no other reason than your heavenly father is merciful and he wants you to have the joy that comes with obedience. And no matter how many ships I jump on, Aren't you thankful that God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances? That's called grace because we need it. Some of you, you're running. Stop it. The only person you're hurting is yourself. You're just missing the joy. That's it. 
For those of you that know my story, there's an 11-year slice of my life when I was asleep below decks. God's world was spinning without me, and I just missed joy. I was happy, kind of. You know, I was sort of satisfied, but not really. Nothing lasted. And maybe you're experiencing the same thing. So stop running and just enjoy him. Last question. And this one's probably the hardest of all. Are you willing? Are you willing? So here's Jonah, this once upon a time faithful prophet who says, God, I'm yours. God, I'll follow you. But then in his actual followership, in his actual life with God, he says, God, I'm with you, but I'm not going to Nineveh. Not to those people. Not that place. God, I love you, but God, I'll follow you, but God, I'm not doing that. Here's the line, God, and don't you dare cross it. That is not how God's call works. Willingness does not sound like, God, I'm yours, but. Willingness sounds like, God, I'm yours, and. One word, massive difference. God, I'm yours, and I'll follow you anywhere. God, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go, and I'll go to whoever you call me to, and you can have every part of my life. God, I'm yours, and. One word, massive difference. Here's the thing for us. Unwillingness can look like a lot of things. For Jonah, it's racial. You saw that. Maybe yours is political. I don't know. In a world of unwillingness, God, I'm yours, but there can be a lot in there. And God's rebuke is, Jonah, your hate didn't kill my plan, but it definitely stole your joy. Hmm. Hate in any form, superiority in any form, elitism in any form kills mission. You can't reach people for Christ until you love people in Christ. Love enables mission. It's the pavement that smooths the road. And just so you don't feel like I'm doing a little bit of bait and switch here, willingness costs. Some of you know that because it's scary. When you say, okay, God, I will follow you and you can have whatever. Yes, Jesus is deeply fulfilling. And I will stand in front of you this morning and say there's nothing more fulfilling than a life spent following Jesus Christ everywhere he leads you. But Jesus also said some pretty crazy things. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, not me. And a servant's not greater than his master. He said, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, what? I've overcome the world. If you want to be my disciple, what do you want to do? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, Follow me. I don't know too many of us that wake up in the morning willing to pick up an electric chair and strap it to our backs and walk through our world like that. And all I can tell you is it's worth it. Here's the principle underneath all of this and really where it comes down from moving this from a fish story into something much bigger and much more beautiful. The revival that I want is on the other side of a sacrifice that I'm unwilling to make. The revival that I want, and I push it even further, the revival that I'm created for, your purpose is on the other side of a sacrifice that I'm unwilling to make. And here's where a message like this is so profoundly unhelpful, and I realize this, because I can't tell you what that means for you. I can describe it for me. I can't prescribe it for you. You've got to figure that out. (laughs) 
The revival that you were created for is on the other side of a sacrifice that you're unwilling to make. And my word for you is press in. Ask Jesus what it is. Are you willing? So those are these three questions that I just kind of want to encourage you to think on and pray through, maybe even this week. Maybe it, it fuels your prayer time this afternoon or tomorrow morning, maybe even longer. Have I met mercy? Am I running? And am I willing? I can tell you guys it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. You will never give up anything in this life that God won't replace with himself. I promise you. Let me pray. Our Father, we do thank you for these hard words from Jonah. This reluctant prophet who learned your mercy the hard way. And God, I know I'm in that same boat. I've got a really thick skull and I've got a really calloused heart. Father, I thank you for chasing me down and preserving me. So many of my brothers and sisters in this room, God, that you love us even though we've given you every reason not to. Father, we praise you for your mercy. And we just ask that you take our lives, you use us. We don't have any hope if it wasn't for Christ where your justice and your mercy come together. So Father, we say thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.